The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. When I lived in Wellington, I often used to go for long walks in the trees and the forests around Zealandia, which is the what used to be called the Karori Bird Sanctuary. This is an old area of regrowth bush where there are a whole bunch of macrocarpa trees. And all around that area of Brooklyn and Aro Valley in Wellington, these very big, tall macrocarpa trees are still there. And often when I went to walk through the Zealandia Bird Park, I often wondered why haven't they cut down all of those macrocarpa trees? They're ugly. They're certainly not native. But then it dawned on me as I started to see how the birds, and in particular the kaka, were using the macrocarpa trees. They used to roost right up high, as high as they possibly could, and they love them. Over the years, I started to understand why the Zealandia Bird Park had not cut down those trees and how amazing that growth of bird life around Wellington had become. It really made Wellington a wonderful place for me. I connected to Wellington through the kaka, to the point where I actually built a website, a business, and called it the kaka. The reason I talk about this is because in this week's When the Facts Change, I wanted to talk about trees, about how they can be used to sequester carbon, and how we could use a massive tree planting exercise across the country, 1.5 million hectares of very marginal land. So this is not entire farms replanted in Pinus radiata, but replanted in all sorts of exotics and natives, including redwood, eucalypts, and other trees that will sink carbon fast and actually retain the strength of the soil so that we don't have more of these cyclone Gabrielle type exercises. This week on When the Facts Change, I speak to Mark Belton, who is a forestry consultant, a long-time advisor to people planting forests, not just to harvest them later on, but increasingly to make them permanent, to be a carbon sink. New Zealand over the last four or five years has really become a strong place for planting lots 
unfortunately, of Pinus radiata. They are amazingly fast growers in New Zealand, and they are the fastest way to sink carbon that we've got. And with our emissions trading scheme, having prices up towards $100 a tonne as recently as last year, an awful lot of land was being replanted in Pinus radiata to just stay there because there was big money to be made. Now, this has caused all sorts of grief in rural communities with lots of farmers and small towns worried that these forests, once they're planted, of course, they won't be sources of employment, of revenue, of logs coming through, that this money really goes out of the community. To the point where the National Party announced uh, this week that it would actually ban the planting of these Pinus radiata forests on useful, productive sheep and beef farms. However, it's worth questioning just how profitable all of those sheep and beef farms are and looking at particular parts of the farms which would be much better off in some sort of carbon sink forest. This is all really relevant right now because there is a crisis in the emissions trading scheme and a problem of political acceptance for planting of forests as a carbon sink. Understandably, a lot of people in the community who are focused on solving our emissions problem worry that the planting of forests distracts from people reducing their emissions to start with. But to deal with this issue, we've got to do as much as we can, as fast as we can, particularly in the next 10 years or so, and it's going to have to involve reducing emissions and doing carbon sinks. The worry here, of course, is that in the wake of Cyclone Gabrielle, a lot of people have started to worry that if we plant the entire country in Pinus radiata, we're going to have more of these slash-style events. The irony, of course, is that so much of that pine was planted on the East Coast, largely because of Cyclone Bowler. When Cyclone Bowler hit, a lot of that land was just in pasture, very prone to erosion, and the idea was, let's plant it in pine, and that will stop a lot of slips and make it more useful land. So that was done. Now, that meant that when they had been cut down and all of the slash was there waiting to run off, it ran off and it was awful. But there are other types of trees, as Mark Belton tells us in this week's episode, that bind together the soil much better, that actually survive after they've been cut down or after they've been knocked down to make that land much more stable. And also with a variety of trees, be a place for native forests to regrow underneath or in tandem with those eucalypts, with those redwoods. A bit like the macrocarpa, the macrocarpa around Wellington that host all of those kaka. This week on When the Facts Change, we present a big idea of how to reduce our erosion, how to create a carbon sink, and how to spend billions of dollars of money on reducing our emissions liability, but doing it 
here in Aotearoa instead. That's this week on When the Facts Change. Well, kia ora, and welcome to Mark Belton to When the Facts Change. It's great to see you, Mark. Um, you've got a particular interest and expertise in growing forests as carbon sinks. Can you tell us about um, how you became so interested and, and uh, focused on this area? Yeah, well, I, I've been involved with forestry as a forester and a forest ecologist for 40 years and working in production forestry as well as environmental forestry. And most recently, in fact, the last two decades in carbon forestry. And so in the carbon forestry territory, uh, I guess the interest is around carbon sequestration, the conservation benefits associated with long-lived forests that have been grown for that purpose, and also in the background, the opportunities for production from those forests, if that's an opportunity. So uh, it's all very topical at the moment, what's happening with our forests and also how we're going to deal with our uh, emissions shortfall in terms of how many uh, how many tons of emissions we need to reduce our emissions by before 2030 and um, we also have a, a massive issue as we discovered during cyclone Gabrielle with unstable landscapes and uh, an issue with slash uh, with the uh, forestry industry that's um, that's being harvested um, You've got an idea, though, on how we could maybe kill a few birds with one stone in terms of planting a lot of land in uh, forests to suck up carbon, but at the same time uh, make that land more stable. Can you talk about your idea? Yeah. Look, it's incredibly important we focus on making our primary sector land bank more resilient, future-proof it against repeat cyclone Gabriel events. And these events, uh, I think it's sort of widely accepted now, uh, these high-intensity storm events are likely to become more frequent. And the consequences for our land in New Zealand of these storms is catastrophic. And in the case of cyclone Gabriel, in addition to the human suffering, of impacted people, but the, the costs in terms of infrastructure and homes and productive land, we're talking in the order of $15 billion. So these are massively expensive events, but we're still going forward for New Zealand. We have a lot of our land bank, a pretty big chunk of it, which is highly prone to erosion and landslips in these intensive storms. So we should be doing our best to identify that land and to establish it in another land use which reduces the risk of erosion. And after Cyclone Bowler, it became very clear from the work that was done at the time that the level of erosion, the frequency of erosion over these um, at-risk land types was on average about 16 times higher under pasture than it was under permanent forest cover. And the permanent forest cover, as it happened, could have either be mature native forest or it could be planted forest. 
And the, there was no statistical difference, in fact, between the planted forest and mature native forest. But, you know, a 16 times greater frequency of erosion and loss of soil is an extraordinary magnitude of difference. So you can imagine the contribution of slipping pastoral lands in particular, but also forest lands, but pastoral lands which created the catastrophe with uh, Gabriel. And if you could reduce that uh, input of soil, even halve it, let alone get towards reducing it to one sixteenth, uh, we are talking about something which is essential to be done for New Zealand. Can you give us a sense of how much land is out there that is marginal? I suppose it's not particularly profitable, uh, farming sheep and beef. And um, what could be done with it that is not just more profitable for the landowner, but also helps New Zealand uh, deal with its um, emissions reduction shortfall and a potential liability that uh, Aotearoa has uh, by 2030, which Treasury has estimated could be anything up to $24 billion. These lands, if they weren't in pasture for a start, but were in the process of growing forests rapidly, would be sequestering a lot of carbon. And this land bank is not only at risk and expensive to deal with, and many properties uneconomic and at the tipping point in terms of being sustainable going into the future. But the um, yeah, the opportunity then is it's it's enormous. We have about eight hundred thousand hectares of land which is recognised as being highly prone to erosion in our steep hill country in New Zealand. And much of that land is in areas where these major cyclone storm events are occurring. So um, the situation isn't going to get better. The only way to reduce the level of erosion and the loss of soil is to forest it, a forest suitable areas. And that's not a simple task. You know, this is a massive challenge because a lot of that land has already lost its topsoil and it's a struggle and very expensive to reclaim it other than perhaps leaving it. But if it's already basically lost the topsoil and we're down to patches of what we call tertiary geology, the underlying rock, then, um, you know, it's sort of game over for those areas. They're already very unproductive. But between those patches, and this is still probably the majority of these landscapes, these areas of remaining topsoil are poised and awaiting further storm events in which there'll be other catastrophic erosion. So at the moment, uh, um, pine foresters who are looking to uh, get hold of some emissions credits uh, can convert that sheep or beef land into pine forests and get um, significant amounts from the emissions trading scheme. And the idea there is, of course, that they um, don't harvest the forest. Um, what what do you think the opportunity is there to replant some of these uh, marginal areas and um, make money from the emissions trading scheme? There's, there's a considerable opportunity to sequester carbon. And if you put a value on that sequestered carbon, price it, then it is a very considerable commercial opportunity. 
be problems with going for radiata pine as a permanent forest cover, as opposed to a forest which is going to be harvested, is that uh, these soils are often so uh, thin and unstable that the trees get to a point where they are prone to toppling because of their height and their bulk above ground. So that can actually compound the problems. Um, other tree species, which have root grafting and coppicing capabilities. Could you um, just, just talk about that word? Sometimes when I hear coppicing, I think, what does that mean? So what do you talk about? <laughs> okay. What do you mean? Yeah, which basically means that from the roots under the ground and around the tree's base, that uh, new growth will sprout if the trees are disturbed or the soil's disturbed and the roots are exposed. So, um, and then those tree species typically have strong root grafting capabilities, which means the tree will um, have its roots will connect with and join to the roots of a neighboring tree. So the roots under the ground become a continuous uh, living root system. And the individual tree above ground might die might be even cut down, but the root system underneath it will be maintained by its neighbours. And so that means it's going to pull the soil together and be much less prone to being washed away. Yeah, potentially, and that, that is the case. So um, yeah, the, probably the best known one in the New Zealand context is the Californian redwood, but you can include poplars and many eucalypt species, uh, Tasmanian blackwood, elm, so there's a, there's a host of species that have these capabilities. And they are, to my mind, they're the obvious ones to be growing, uh, but growing for their carbon sequestration capabilities, which then can make this exercise of re-establishing forest on this land not only good in terms of soil conservation and uh, prevention of catastrophic erosion, uh, but also a productive opportunity and a very great opportunity economically for carbon sequestration. So this seems a commercial opportunity. We've got an emissions trading scheme up and running. The government hasn't changed the rules yet on whether or not um, you can claim credits by planting permanent forests. So surely this is something the market can solve for itself. Um, why why would we need to you know get involved? Surely there's a whole bunch of companies and investors looking to, you know, solve this problem without involving the government any more than is already the case. What's the problem to solve here? Well, yeah, look, the uh, private sector without any sort of guidance, if you like, other than maximising returns and having the simplest path to do that, will invariably go for monocultures of radiata pine. And that's been happening. So I, I guess in the recent rush of investment in carbon forestry, I hazard a guess that probably 90% of that has been with radiata pine. And there's a concern that we do uh, forestry with more diversity and uh, in a manner which is more sensitive to the landscapes and, um, yeah, and better for a, a host of other reasons, perhaps, than radiata pine would be. But the main, the main issue with radiata pine, brilliant as it is, is that um, when it's harvested, for example, its root systems rot 
very, very rapidly. And the risk of erosion after harvesting can be enhanced compared to even what it might have been under pasture because the soil has been loosened by a huge bulk of roots penetrating the soil. And when that they uh, rot out, uh, those old root systems are placed where there's access of, for water. And so lubrication of the interface between the soil and, and the bedrock beneath. And, uh, you know, so you really have lined up a situation of extreme risk until a forest is re-established back on that site. Yeah, so it's important that systems are developed which have permanence. And the thing about the other species I mentioned is that their root systems are effectively uh, permanent, long-lived. And even if trees die individually or harvested within them, that can be done in a manner which maintains the entire living root system. So why do the um, uh, carbon foresters at the moment choose Pinus radiata rather than other types of species, including native? It's much less expensive to establish like, to establish radiata forest. You might be looking at $2,000 sorry, $2, a hectare, whereas to establish by planting a native forest, you could be looking at $20,000, a hectare. Why is it so much more expensive to do natives than, than, than Pinus radiata? Well, the cost of seedlings for radiata pine are a small fraction of the cost of seedlings grown for natives. And the uh, actual establishment costs are a lot lower. And then the growth rates are much higher. So you bring all those factors together. And in terms of getting a rate of return on what money invested, uh, there's, there's no comparison. So, yeah, effectively, uh, to pull one tonne of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere by planting natives, you might be looking at $300 per tonne of carbon poor, uh, carbon dioxide extracted. Whereas with the radiata pine or other fast-growing introduced species, it could be one-tenth of that, about $30. So could you talk about um, those other exotic species and... Um, how they fit in the middle between native at $300 a tonne and uh, Pinus radiata at $30 a tonne, but the advantages that sit in the middle in terms of biodiversity and soil protection. I think we, we sort of need to accept that you don't need to make a um, sort of 20% plus rate of return in this territory. Uh, most land use investments would be lucky to be getting a 3% rate of return, for example, in real life. So a, a rate of return, I think, in the order of sort of 10% should be a pretty powerful incentive in that context. But then there's the social license to operate. And clearly in the political context, there's a lot of resistance to spending, well, to establishing vast areas in a monocultures of radiata pine. And that isn't to, uh, you know, to in any way belittle the remarkable capabilities of radiata pine. It is miraculous in its growth capabilities and the good that it can deliver. It's a question of where we put it. And the steep, steep uh, erosion-prone hill country is not the right place to be putting uh, monocultures of radiata pine. 
for harvesting for obvious reasons because of risks associated with slash, but also um, even for permanent forests. Now, one positive, I guess, in relation to radiata pine in a lot of this country, uh, which is high rainfall country in warmer parts of New Zealand, is that over a longer period of time, the uh, trees do open up. They have a lot, a lot of uh, fungal disease, which causes defoliation, dophostroma, and that allows light and moisture to get through to the forest floor and for there to be an ignition of regrowth, which will include a lot of native plants because the, tree, the birds in the canopy of these forests will be dropping seed. So um, there's potential for a transition there, which occurs naturally as well. But it, it's one course of action, I guess, is to let things happen in that way. But perhaps a, a better course of action is to have a greater diversity of species, which include, um, you know, for example, eucalypts. They have much less dense foliage, much more light and moisture gets to the forest floor. And subsequently, they are much better as a nurse crop for other tree species, including natives, to establish spontaneously beneath them. And you know, the eucalypts can, in many instances, will grow as fast as radiata pine or even faster in terms of carbon sequestration because eucalypt, uh, eucalypts have high-density wood, which means they have a very high carbon content often about double that of radiata pine. On a cubic metre basis, radiata pine, you have double the amount of carbon sequestered in a cubic metre of a high-density eucalypt species. So, yeah, we, we need to broad, broaden our approach to these things and factor in the reality of how much carbon can be sequestered. And what, what um, implications are there for biodiversity and for bird life and being more useful from a biodiversity point of view if you were to bring in some of these you know eucalypts and other non-pinus radiata but still high carbon absorbing species yep well look we, we need to start by acknowledging that radiata pine as it grows and it's present it is actually very good for bird life brilliant as well but if you bring in other species, which uh, might include eucalypts, for example, which are very prolific nectar producing, and radiata pine doesn't produce any nectar. So uh, the eucalypts will be fe feeding bird species, native bird species, which um, pine forest does not feed directly. Um, and then there are species which have got uh, foliage, which is particularly good food for birds. <laughs> So, you know, you'll see uh, abundant populations, for example, of wood pigeons sometimes amongst um, wild cherry in p parts of the landscape because, or amongst um, areas where there is um, tree lucerne as a weed because these plants provide uh, foliage growth, which the birds love eating. Carrero like eating foliage as well as berries. Yeah, so diversity is a huge part of this, and by an, you know intelligent planning, you can bring in a range of tree species, which will provide better habitat, uh, tall tree habitat, which is safe from predators, and uh, 
enables birds to to roost and feed and and uh, nest in a safe habitat, which which actually does require a tall forest structure. Win the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted. They've tightened monetary policy. They've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, and it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Skinny are helping you show how smart you are with the 1Q Quiz, an all-new, super-challenging and super-quick daily quiz built by The Spin-Off. Every Monday, Skinny are giving you the chance to prove you're smart with the Skinny Extra Credit question. Get it right and you'll get the chance to score yourself some Skinny Extra mobile credit so you can text, call or even video call your group chat and gloat about how big your brain is. T's and C's apply. Now, at the, at the moment, you mentioned that the lowest common denominator basically says, uh, get in there, uh, get the land, plant it in Pinus radiata, you get the most carbon sequestered, the fastest, you get the biggest payout from the emissions trading scheme. How could you change the settings of the em- emissions trading scheme or change the way it's set up? And also do all of this very fast, because one of our biggest challenges, of course, is we need to reduce our emissions and sink a lot of carbon fast if we're going to get uh, anywhere near our international targets, let alone actually stop the planet from cooking. So how do we, um, how do we, how do, we do this? Because at the moment, we're on a pathway to Pinus radiata from Cabriang to the yeah. bluff. And look, r- rather than preventing that, what I would suggest, and, and I've written on this, is that the New Zealand government does get involved in a partnership with landowners on those identifiable marginal erodible lands, which inherently have a low value. So you're looking at land which, for farming purposes, essentially has a very marginal value. It might uh, be highly erosion-prone. It may also be affected by uh, scrub weeds, unproductive weeds, which are an ongoing problem. So there's there's a lot of land in New Zealand in that category probably about at least uh, 10% of our reproductive land bank. We're talking, you know, more than a million hectares, perhaps 1.5 million hectares in New Zealand of very low marginal land within the ownership of the farming sector. So it's not adding any value to farming activity, but it's a huge opportunity in terms of its uh, carbon sequestration potential 
under forest. And what would it take to to plant out that one and a half million hectares? How much money are we talking about? Let's say if the government was to use its own emissions trading scheme to try to reduce that liability, because we're going to be short about 100 million tonnes by 2030 under the current um, uh, settings. And if the government wanted to not have to spend $20 billion on international carbon credits, what if they said, okay, if we could actually spend only $8 billion planting our own land in uh, quick carbon sequestration, how much would it cost to do, you know, one and a half million hectares? Well, look, it depends on if you were to do um, a million hectares and you were to pay for that land and put a value on it. And the question is, what value do you put on that land? And I would suggest it would be generous to put, say, $4,000 a hectare on that land, marginal land, which otherwise doesn't have any value for farming. But the farmers need to be incentivized to, to change. And, to, and then there are a lot of costs associated with subdivision, um, fencing, and then the developing a forest, which isn't just radiata, it may have radiata as a major component in areas, but it would also have other species, and including native species to some extent. So in my thinking, I've sort of, instead of applying $2,000 a hectare as the cheapest path, I've um, looked, modelled $6,000 a hectare, which embraces all those other opportunities, including planting in riparian zones for clean water, for you know, for farm plants, stability and so on. So in, in that context, if you're looking at a million hectares and you're looking at basically, I think, about $10 billion all up to establish it. But as you've mentioned, uh, if New Zealand was to meet its obligations internationally by purchasing overseas units, we could be looking at 2030 and paying in excess of that with no benefit for New Zealand other than at all other than on the books, it looks like we've done our thing locally, but we've only done it by pinching carbon from other jurisdictions, which does absolutely nothing for the global situation. And, uh, you know, impossible to want to really prove the veracity of that carbon. Is it real? You know, because the, in the international market, there's a lot of skullduggery and uncertainty out there. And you don't also get the associated benefits of less soil erosion, less slash... Yeah. Uh, and 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 also the you know the, the the biodiversity benefits of you know having all of these um, trees for um, kaka for example yeah. or wood pigeons or tuis to roost in. Yeah, no, look, look absolutely. So the other thing is under the UN uh, guidelines and rules, there's meant to be an emphasis on domestic action before you go offshore try and buy cheap alternatives. And that's what New Zealand is currently facing. So it's completely wrong and unethical when we have these needs in New Zealand and these opportunities here to put a lot of forest back because the source of this problem of erosion is to and the, uh, a lot of the uh, unit, uh, emissions associated with agriculture, which half of our total emissions are on land which was deforested and shouldn't have been deforested. So this is part of paying back a historic debt. But the other thing, which is it's very important that New Zealand and globally, that we actually remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. That should be a priority. And New Zealand's in a position to provide leadership in that area. 
And it has done that in the past, but we've really dropped the ball. We've been sort of playing in the, the sort of market territory where a small number of big players are speculating on making extraordinary rates of return. And New Zealand as a country is sort of missing out. And they are able to play the market and influence it. We need to take control of that space. And I suggest then that the government uh, makes the opportunity because it defines all the rules are defined by the government in this context. So let's say, let's say for example, if the government um, said, okay, actually the government ourselves, we have um, eight, $10 billion to spend here in New Zealand instead of spending it in Vanuatu or Panama or wherever it is. And what would actually need to happen? Would the government buy the land for $8, $10 billion um, from the farmers and transfer cash to the farmers? How would this work? Okay. Well, the government makes the rules around carbon trading for a start. So it can say who can come into the game, what the parts of the game which are allowed in there to play. The government can go into a partnership with landowners, as it's done often in the past, whereby there's a lease equivalent. You're not purchasing the land, but you're securing a right of use over that land, in this case for a collective purpose, which is for New Zealand, the benefit of New Zealand. And I would add to that that instead of the carbon being released into a loose market where prices can vary enormously and there's a perception of huge risk because that uh, lack of control and pricing, the government, logically on behalf of New Zealand, should be purchasing that carbon and at a secure price as a forward offering. And it needn't, needn't be for a very great period of time. It might be for the carbon that's sequestered, for example, in the first 15 years of the life of that forest. And thereafter, all that ownership of the carbon might revert entirely to the landowners of that land. And it may not, and it may include private participation in this, because if a government created the right rules, and it was a highly attractive investment, say, but showing a rate of return of around 10% or 12%, gosh, Private investors would love to join that party. It's an incredible rate of return. But in a, most importantly, in the background, if we get on with this, we can deliver a vast amount of carbon into our national carbon accounts, which the government can then use to allay our responsibilities, if you like, address them, instead of having to go into this sort of wild west of purchasing overseas units at an exorbitant price for no direct benefit of New Zealand, just a pure cost. So there's an opportunity for us to capture this carbon through this partnership with landowners um, at a cost of about $30 per tonne of carbon sequestered into the New Zealand accounts. And then there's a host of other economic benefits. Clearly, the landowning section are getting a major injection of money, you know, 40% of that expenditure I'm talking about is actually going to the landowners. And that could be transferred, you know, as some form of upfront payment, or it could be transferred over a period of time because they would have a custodial responsibility in that partnership. And that's very important. Yeah, then the government has the right in that context to say, well, these are the rules that we are going to operate. We're going to be really responsible. This is going to be best practice forestry. We're not just going to plant monocultures on steep lands. We're going to plant suitable species for suitable locations. And that'll be in taking into account 
their appearance, the landscape character of the land, the diversity of species, the capability of those species, because different species have got different capabilities depending on the climate and the land type. So there's a lot of room for, if you like, sensitive approach to these these matters. And, uh, you know, I guess one of the virtues of Radiata Pine is it's so forgiving, you can sort of pretty much bang it in everywhere and it'll be pretty damn well, if not excellently. But, um, you know, other species like eucalypts will outgrow Radiata Pine, but it's some particular eucalypts in some particular situations. And and likewise, you know, there are even redwood can outgrow Radiata Pine and, and Douglas fir in some very particular situations, but they take longer to get there. So you have to be mindful of a whole range of things. So it requires a level of thoughtful and sophisticated planning as well. So this isn't sort of gold rush territory. This is for the longer term security for New Zealand in this space to do the job around carbon sequestration. And going back to that, currently we've got half of our emissions associated with agriculture, and we're not addressing those effectively at all. And this is integrating the agricultural section sector into the game hugely. And in the transition to a zero carbon economy in New Zealand. We have to have carbon sequestration. A lot of our emissions are very intractable. And in the final analysis, we can only address those intractable emissions through carbon sequestration. Now, one of the um, points that the Climate Commission has made over the last year or so in pushing back against allowing um, Uh, carbon sinks through forests is that by doing this, you effectively give um, drivers and uh, factories and uh, farmers a get-out-of-jail-free card. They don't now have to reduce their gross emissions. All they have to do is buy some credits and and they're um, free and they don't have to inconvenience themselves too much. And therefore, that's one of the reasons why you would exclude uh, uh, carbon sinks from your emissions trading scheme. What's your view on this idea that you know reducing our emissions by sinking them in forests is a, a a cheap and easy way to solve the problem, which only can be done once because um, you can only sink the carbon once. You can't repeat it. Whereas when you reduce emissions, you reduce them for a long time. Yeah, look, absolutely. The Climate Change Commission is right to put the focus on reducing emissions. But we have a transition to make, and we also have these intractable uh, emissions associated with our economic activity, which require sequestration to be addressed. So there are two components. We have to shift the emphasis. And a lot of big emitters in the past have thought, oh, we'll get off by, you know, get out of jail card free. That's the wrong approach. And it's really important, hugely important, that the emitters in a a market environment are faced with a rising carbon price, a steeply rising carbon price. But we can't hook carbon forestry into that, because all it does is drive up land prices and speculation. And and we'll see vastly more radiata pine being planted and a lot more public anger about it. No politician wants to be in the midst of that dogfight. However, if the government takes control of the conditions in which you can participate and makes a a generous offering in terms of a realistic offering about bringing land into that, because it is very profitable for the government, and also uh, the rules require responsible, considered approach to 
permanent carbon forestry. Then you've got a solution box, which means you can separate the carbon sequestration territory and the price paid effectively for the government I propose, which might be about $60 a tonne. And even with those higher costs I mentioned, you're still looking at a rate of return around 10 or 12%. But you don't need a play in this territory where people are speculating on getting 25% rate of return, or if a carbon price collapses as it has recently, you know, suddenly halving that. It's chaotic territory. And we don't need chaos in this. We need some certainty and focus. So we must let the emitters face a higher cost. And we can't just keep on connecting the carbon forestry sequestration territory to that ever-increasing cost. That's ridiculous. Otherwise, we'd end up trying to plant most of the country. (laughs) So just so I've got it clear in my head here, you're saying that the government could, say, set a price of $60 a tonne by which it would set the terms for planting this marginal land. And it, and, and it would mean, you know, different species, not necessarily Pinus radiata, species that would both uh, sink carbon but also um, reduce erosion. And then you would have a separate price for other emissions reductions from, you know, driving and burning coal or whatever. Totally. And that avoids the problem of a, a, a wildly fluctuating and maybe very high carbon price in the one scheme driving everyone to plant, plant the whole country in pot. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, it. you know, I mean, I... You know, 20 years ago, some of our first clients were major coal companies who simply just wanted to offset all their emissions associated with uh, And, uh, yeah, we looked at that. And if you planted a vast area of pine, you could offset all their emissions. It's like, but, hell, um, that is not the right approach because they would want to continue to produce, you know, um, emissions from their coal activities. So um, it's really important that we are able to increase the cost of the emitters to the emitters across the economy. Mark Belton, um, who is a a consultant looking at um, carbon farming in New Zealand. Mark, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Thank you. Good to talk. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te aihe Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.